Last December, my grandparents celebrated their 60th wedding anniversary, a milestone that sometimes seemed improbable they would ever reach. Because despite their strong marriage, strong faith, and large family with eight children, all the things that keep couples together for better or worse, it's hard to stay married to someone who's passed. My grandfather suffers from a number of illnesses. He's diabetic and schizophrenic, and at 58 years old, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. He now relies on in-home medical care and is essentially bedridden. His joints stiff and locked into position, the excess skin around his thighs and upper arms dangling loose. He's forgotten how to chew, and all of his meals are liquids. Sometimes, his body remembers what his mind cannot. He gnaws at teething toys and languidly attempts to lift his hands to cradle his relatives' faces. He mutters slurred reminders that he must go to work and murmurs faint agreement if he registers someone speaking directly to him. He pats your wrists if he enjoys your company, and he burrows his trimmed fingernails into the palms of your hands if he'd like you to stay. But these moments are ephemeral, and he's rarely lucid. We gathered as a family, dozens of us, cousins, uncles, aunts, for a celebration of my grandparents' marriage last December. At the door to their home, a ceramic-tiled bungalow nestled into a steep hill in Governador Valadares, Brazil. I soaked my skin and clothes and luggage in hand sanitizer, and I met my grandfather, lying in his hammock on a sunlit stretch of patio. The lotion on his delicate skin shimmers in the Brazilian heat and his restless eyes vibrate from one patch of my grandmother's garden to another. I grip his hand and tilt my head to catch his gaze, until finally he looks at me and croaks with a gummy smile. Minha filha, my daughter. He searches for my mother in my features, the same way that for years she scoured his expressions for traces of the father that he used to be. This is my mother, cornered in our walk-in closet, you know, for the acoustics even in such a trivial space, surrounded by clothing and hoarded holiday decorations. We shared a candid reflection on a very familiar grief, the grief of mourning someone long before they're gone. My name is Raquel Silva Pareira. I'm Rebecca's mom. (laughs) We attempted this introduction at least 10 times. What do you remember from your childhood about Grandpa? Uh, I remember my dad uh, working a lot all day and coming home late for dinner. 
he was usually very tired, very nervous, and uh, all the neighborhood kids were afraid of him. <laughs> but the school was the place uh, we loved the most because at the home we had a little house with many kids. We were eight kids. We had no comfort. Our first teacher was our mother because before uh, sending the kids to school, she used to teach all of us how to write, how to read, math. Uh, that's why at school we were always the smartest kids because my mom uh, made a great effort at home to teach us. Yeah. We were all homeschooled the first years. Oh, wow. Yeah. I remember when the church youth just wanted to go to camping, camping sites or um, summer travel, something with the pastor or our teacher from the church. Everybody would go, but not us because my father was very jealous of his three girls. He was not jealous of his five boys. The five boys could go everywhere in the world, but the girls would never. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that you put up with that kind of treatment from him as your father? I knew already that my father had a mental problem because he had had an accident before, and he had been very sick. So we tried to understand better and uh, uh, not to discuss with him, to make him nervous. And um, we tried to help my mother too, because she needed to take care of all of us, and I'm the third one. So uh, in part, I considered myself in charge to help her take care of my other siblings, my youngest ones. Yeah, he was riding his bike, going to, to work, but we lived up the hill, and uh, my mother talked to him not to ride the, his bike, asked him not to ride his bike down the hill, but he didn't listen because he was very stubborn. And then he did, and uh, two minutes after, he had an accident because he fell down from, the, from his bike and he was thrown across the street and hit his head. He was not wearing uh, any helmet. So it was very hard for all of us. We were still little and uh, our dad stayed in the hospital for about 40 days. 40 days? Yeah, 40 days. And um, when he came home, we got scared of him because he was, he had all his head wrapped and we could see only his eyes and he was supposed to be to rest in his bed for a long time. So everything that came later, his behavior, and we tried to understand better, to be very patient because we knew that he was, uh, that could be um, a consequence of his accident. The man my grandfather used to be wasn't always a reasonable person, a non-violent or even communicative father. But his aggression, his volatility, his stoic aloofness in a house that teemed with life and laughter, 
those stern characteristics might not have been his fault. When my mom shares the story of his accident in Portuguese, she uses the word mumia or mummy. When she describes his traumatic brain injury, she mentions his mangled bike crushed in a semi-open sewer drain. And when she tells stories from the 20 years that followed, lenient recollections of his iron fist and a style of discipline that often bordered on abuse, she tells these stories with light-hearted forgiveness. And I don't fault her for remembering him through rose-colored glasses, because although he's a gentler man today than he once was, an amenable, sedated patient, my grandfather has regressed into only a whisper of a human being. Even in my earliest memories of my grandfather, Alzheimer's had already begun taking a hold of him. For as long as I've been alive, my grandfather has slowly died, and watching him deteriorate, my mother and her mother and her siblings have all at least begun to make their peace with the father, the husband, and the man that he used to be. Yeah, I noticed that uh, he started having some weird behaviors. He started getting too nervous, out of control. And then we could see it was something very serious. Do you remember anything? Anything, anything could make him uh, very nervous. Even a fly, a mosquito, anything could make him very nervous. So we saw he was not well. Was there any? Was there an incident where you, where you realized that this was not a simple, a simple thing? When he started, uh, he started fighting with my, my mom. Because before, he used to be, he was still nervous, but with my mom, he was very respectful, loving, a loving husband. And when he started treating her uh, in a rude way, we noticed that was some, there was something very, very bad happening to him. As he was a, a hard working man, he didn't agree he could not work anymore. So he was really sick, but he wanted to go to work anyways in the morning. Right after he woke up, he wanted to leave the house on his own to go to work. Way to work, <laughs> right? Uh, so that was very sad because he was feeling like he was not useful anymore. He got very confused when he couldn't remember names and facts. He got very, very anxious. He tried his best, but he couldn't. So he started to get very sad after that uh, anxiety to try to express himself. The Alzheimer came when he was only uh, 58. And, uh, but when we recogni re really recognized the Alzheimer and the doctor gave him this diagnosis, and he started the treatment. I was already living in the United States. So my youngest brothers and the sisters um, who, was, who were there with them saw most of the Alzheimer uh, reactions and uh, the beginning of everything. 
Yeah, it was it was very hard at the beginning because I wanted to be there with my uh, siblings and my mom to help him uh, as much as I could. Uh, but the distance uh, was very hard for me. Uh, yeah, what made me very sad when we recognized he had Alzheimer's uh, was that he couldn't recognize us. Yeah, he couldn't recognize us. He didn't know my name anymore. So that was very sad. Now, sometimes he does. He has some flashes, memory flashes. And uh, sometimes he recognizes. He, sometimes he says our names. For example, oh, this last time we went to Brazil, when I talked to him, he said, my little baby, minha menininha. Yeah, he said that when I, he saw me and he gave me the most beautiful smile, like a happy baby. I saw him. He didn't say my name, but he recognized me. But uh, what scared us a lot at the beginning was that he had lost his memory and he couldn't talk to us about any subject anymore and he couldn't remember our names. That was really sad. What do you remember? What do you remember him liking? Because it seems like he he was a very hard worker. He spent a lot of hours out in the sun doing really brutal manual labor. But what do you remember him liking and enjoying? He enjoyed just just a few things. He was not the kind of uh, entertaining man uh, because he had, I think, that has to do with his childhood. In Bahia, his state where he spent his childhood, he was really poor. A very, he had a very poor family and his, he lost his mother when he was still very young. Uh, and he suffered a lot. He has three brothers and the, the four of them suffered so much when they lost their mom and then later on, his dad uh, married again, but uh, I don't know if they had a good relationship with their stepmother, but I know that they escaped to Minas Gerais to try a better life. And uh, I think everything they lived in his childhood, their childhood, and uh, when they, the time they were teenagers have to do with their suffering and their style of life. Mm -hmm. But he, yeah, he was proud of his family. He used to preach at church, read the Bible a lot, and uh, he took very seriously our education very seriously. But for example, we didn't travel anywhere. We didn't go anywhere for vacations. We got a TV when we were teenagers. And uh, when we got the TV, he just used it to like news, the news program, <laughs> I think. You, you got this from him. <laughs> uh, 
special yeah just knows uh and he us usually he hated the uh, comedy programs he didn't laugh at all <laughs> <laughs> some think that was funny for us would never be funny for him he was very serious do you rem do you remember any instances when your dad cried yeah i remember he cried a lot when he lost his father who lived in Bahia, far from Minas Gerais, far from our city. And uh, um, at that time, there was no phone. We, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have home phone. Everything, all the communication was through letters, just letters. And uh, it took a long time for the uh, post office to deliver all the mails. And when he got the letter telling him with the notes that um, his father had passed away, he sat down and cried for a long time. It was very sad. I remember that. We were still little. I remember him crying a lot after Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To know why, I think... Cry like a baby. Yeah. I think that happened because uh, when he recognized he couldn't speak, he couldn't communicate well with the family, he couldn't uh, let us know what he was feeling, what he wanted, yeah. He couldn't recognize us. Uh, it was a lot of suffering for him. So the only thing he could do was crying because he was suffering. I often think of my grandfather's intelligence, the depth of his biblical knowledge, and his love of geography. I think of how staunchly he, a man with no formal education, fought to keep his children in school. I remember him sitting at the head of the table, where the head of the household traditionally sits. He was a very traditional man. I remember the zero-calorie sweetener he took with his coffee, how he would perch his eyeglasses on his forehead so that he could pray, and I remember him reclining on his armchair, watching the evening news. It especially moves me to consider how much he lost, and how intangible and fleeting memory can be. In May 2016, when I was 14 and in my sophomore year of high school, my mom traveled to Brazil to be with my grandfather at what doctors said would be his deathbed. At that point, he had forgotten how to chew, and food diverted from his GI tract left him hospitalized with a lung infection. He stayed in the hospital for 70 days. During those 70 days, his eight children flew home from Italy, the United States, and other cities in Brazil. They drew up his will they bought a coffin and paid for a family plot in the local cemetery. But little by little... Little by little, he got better and he's still with us. We all believe that God has a purpose 
on everything. And uh, he's the owner of life. So if he's alive, still with us, that's what God wants to, to give us as a gift. We could go there, we, could, we can hug him, we can still kiss him, we can still talk to him, feel his presence with us. Um, and we just think it was not his time to go yet. His Alzheimer's set in at 58. Mm-hmm. How do you relate to the possibility of losing your memory? Because it's something that scares me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't get scared. That will not happen. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Nowadays, we have more resources. We, have, we know how to help ourselves to recognize and to avoid to avoid that kind of problems today the medicine is more advanced i don't worry about that i don't worry uh, i worry in my with my dad and all the people who have alzheimer but i don't worry about myself having alzheimer because i don't want to suffer in advance i know it, i can live a good life now and I can take care of my mental health. And I want to do, I want to see my daughter very happy, growing in life. And, and I don't want to get the idea of it being sad, imagining the day of tomorrow, what could happen. No? Uh, only bad things, no. Many beautiful things are coming in the future. The tomorrow will take care of itself. Thank you. You're welcome. Love you. I love you too. Vai falar. Deus te abençoe, meus filhos. For WMUA News, I'm Rebecca Pereira. Thank you.